0: Huh. What?
1: Oh my goodness. Wow. Oh my gosh. What is happening? Oh my god. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
0: Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work.
1: Get out. Come on.
0: We don't know where
2: the moon came from.
1: Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible.
2: We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to.
0: Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. Today's episode is with Joe Lonsdale, the founder and managing partner at ABC, the founder and chairman of the board of the Cicero Institute, and the co-founder of Palantir, Adipar, and many more. He also has a podcast called The American Optimist, which we'll link in the show notes. Also joining is Vijay Kande, the founding partner of A16Z Bio and Health. Together, we talk about what factors lead to innovation versus stagnation, monopoly power in healthcare, and policy ideas to incentivize change, growth, and dynamism. Let's get started.
0: Joe, thank you so much for being on BioReads World. Thanks for having me, Vijay. You know, I want to get to talking about uh, healthcare, especially how to innovate in healthcare, And all the different players, uh, startups, investors, public companies, NGOs, government.
2: There's a lot of mess to fix. I
0: want to set the stage for in terms of not just uh, sort of where you are now, but how you got here. And sort of go back on your founder story. So an obvious place to start might be at PayPal and to talk about uh, sort of your early days there.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I was I was an intern there for for a couple of years. I actually was rejected there. My was my freshman year yeah. in Stanford Computer Science, and I noticed all the smart people I admired who were older than me were going there, and they didn't want me that first year. But I eventually <laughs> convinced them to bring me in.
0: Yeah, Michael
2: Jordan did not make his uh, basketball team. I think it was sophomore year. <laughs> yeah, a, a good a good analogy, thank <laughs> you. Yeah, I thought I was right, but it's uh, maybe you thought I was too obnoxious, which is probably the case. I was as an eighteen year old. Yeah, but but you stuck with it. You got you, and you, you get there. I stuck with it. Peter didn't think I was as obnoxious. Got to work with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, listen, PayPal was a place obviously in retrospect, right? There's like 16 or 17 billion dollar companies mm-hmm. started from these people. So it was a really good place to learn about the culture and technology. You had Elon and his side with X.com merging with Peter and Max and those guys in Confinity. You had Reed Hoffman and David Sachs there. So I, I was, you know, I'm 15 years younger than most of them. I was really lucky to be able to learn from these guys. Yeah, what did you learn? You know, I learned you know, strong opinions is is healthy to, you know, yeah. learn to be bold. These things I learned it. People work together late at night, you know, solving problems. I learned that the way you solve the hardest problems sometimes comes from from anyone. It doesn't have to like, be the person at the top telling you what to do. It comes from everyone trying and iterating. Uh, I learned that some people have no idea how certain parts of their company work and just they're, they're doing their best. So, you know, my first job there was horrible. They had me installing PeopleSoft, which I don't know if oh, you ever heard. Yeah,
0: no, that sounds like a lot of that fun. Was, I
2: said, yeah, I know. It yeah. turns out that this thing is purposely set up. You have to pay a consultant, which they didn't know. And I didn't know. And it was, it was pretty miserable. And I actually I'll, I'll tell you what. I almost quit right away because it was like three weeks into it. I'm like, this is impossible, This is the stupidest thing ever. These people are idiots. They're telling me to do something <laughs> that can't be done. And it's and it's like I, people's phone call me back and I, dad. I'm just not going to work anymore yep. there. It's too dumb. And you, and you wouldn't need to convince me not to quit, which is a good is a good thing that you convinced me not to because I did other things there which were, which were more useful. But uh, you know so, so I, was, I was lucky just to be be learning from these people
0: I mean you, you learned especially about I, I
2: guess how to build a company too right yeah you, you, I mean you bring in a lot of people who have different opinions different views you know a lot of contrarian thinkers I mean obviously we know Reed Hoffman and, and Peter Thiel and others have very different views of, of the world you know in terms of you know later on as at Elon as you you put these people together you bring your smartest friends you work really really hard and you figure things out from first principles. And, and, and you have opinions, then you, you test those opinions, right? And, and and you adapt as you go along, right? PayPal had eight different companies that were, I think, destroyed as competitors because of the Russian and Chinese mafia. Mm-hmm. And they had to like figure out how to fight the bad guys. And it was just like a, it's really interesting to me. Like, I thought we were building a business here and there's bad guys and we have to fight. It's just <laughs> cool, right? It's like, you have to like, you have to figure out how to do the anti fraud thing. You have to figure out how to convince the secret service to arrest the guys. Wow. You have to, you know, so there's just all these pieces that I didn't realize were part. Of, of creating value in business. And I realized you kind of had to hack the world. Like the world is set up to work a certain way. And, it, and it's usually set up to make it really hard to create new things.
0: So you learn a ton at PayPal. What gets you to to Palantir? And, and why found Palantir? What's the need? What what was the need that uh, you wanted to fix in, in in founding that company? So I got
2: to know Peter Thiel. I was working at his family office and he was investing in a lot of things. And I was I was, you know, a star trader at his, at his macro fund. I was really interested in finance. And we used, we'd sit around and we'd talk about the world, debate, you know, what's going on, what's worth fixing. And, you know, after PayPal, we kind of saw how the Secret Service and FBI worked, how they didn't really know technology yet. No surprise, because the Internet was new. And, we, and then we saw 9-11 happen. And these guys would come to us for advice on the technology, on what they're doing, because we had got to know them. You know, I was always fascinated with, you know, James Bond and the intelligence world <laughs> and how all these things work. And it became clear to us that... Like most of the people in D.C. had no idea how modern technology worked. They had none of the lessons from Silicon Valley. None of the top talent from Silicon Valley were going to solve these problems. And and it was scary because after 9-11, you know, they were spending $38 billion a year gathering data. And they're doing it in like 1980s ways. And they weren't gonna catch the bad guys. And and moreover, they were clearly going to violate civil liberties, and they were violating civil liberties the way they were doing it. Because I mean you think of the show 24 with Jack Bauer, yep. if you ever saw that in the oh, old yeah. days, like if you're gonna catch a terrorist, you're just gonna do whatever it takes and you're gonna <laughs> grab it and you're gonna, so and that's and not, you're gonna that, break the rules. That's not how it works. That is how they were trying to do it yeah. is like to break yeah. the rules to catch them because they needed to, and it was a mess. Yeah. It, it was a huge mess. We said, Wow, you could actually take these, you know. For, for better or worse, you know, in, in the 1970s, NSA was way ahead of everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So so I grew up in computer science kind of looking up to the intelligence oh, community because yeah. you have all these stories about how they were 15 years ahead and we only found out later why they were doing things. And that wasn't the case anymore come 2000. Like Silicon Valley had gotten way ahead. And why is that? What do you think? You know, uh, this is a really important question for our society to think about because in World War II, you kind of brought the best and brightest into I the government Manhattan it a total project, war.
0: right? I mean, like what could be more it was, significant it was a total that?
2: war? It, was, it yeah. was a very functional thing. And, and there was a few different things in our society that innovation was a lot more expensive. Yeah. So to do, to do innovation, you had to be at bell labs. You had to be at NASA. You had to be at a place that was really well funded, right? You, you couldn't just have in bio and in tech, just random little groups, of people doing things. And so, 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 so you naturally had the best and brightest attracted to these big institutions, the government. And, and that, that was kind of the default for how the world worked. Um, and so you've had in the ensuing years, it's become a lot, lot, lot cheaper for innovation. So, so when you have the incentive for a really smart person to work on their own and build something, you, you get a lot where people spread out. And then when you have this, the center no longer getting the smart people when you're not holding it accountable. Like over time, it decays. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you have an unaccountable bureaucracy, and over time, instead of celebrating competence because it's no longer competent, it celebrates virtue signaling. It celebrates mm-hmm. philosophies that 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 kind of more are more nihilist and then meanwhile you have the frontier of our society what I define as a frontier right in yeah. America's a frontier country which is our places like the good parts of silicon Valley wh- where you're accountable and, and you that's use,
0: where the innovation will go
2: and, and it becomes a place where you're able to fire the people who aren't working out you're able to attract the other best people and so you get this functional thing with these feedback loops
0: and it's not just government like you think about today like if uh, or maybe like five or ten years ago if you wanted to start a self-driving car company you would do that in Silicon Valley. You wouldn't do it in Detroit. I mean, GM or Ford probably couldn't do that. They couldn't hire machine learning engineers.
2: These these companies haven't yeah. had to reinvent themselves in quite the same way in a long time, right? So I think, yeah, I think if, if if AI, if that technology had come up and all of a sudden been available in that way in the 50s and 60s, it would have been built in Detroit because yeah. that was where the de- top people were. It was yeah, the absolutely. most dynamic. Yeah. But, but these these things have obviously, unfortunately, de- decayed. And, and you know, in, in corporations, what happens is when you get moats around that industry, and then the moats allow them to kind of become unaccountable. And so any any industry, which we'll talk about with healthcare later as well, that has too many moats in certain ways, like, like the parts that start to adopt the nihilist philosophies, you can tell those are the parts that are broken. Well, yeah.
0: it also becomes a bit of a resource curse, right? Because they just have, they're printing money and we wouldn't want to break that machine.
2: I mean, this is how most of the defense and intelligence spending works in our country right now. The sad thing is, I think there's actually a lot of virtue to people on the left who, who question a lot of what's going on there, because a lot of it is, frankly, like the rights version of a jobs program. If I happen to believe in a strong U.S. is good for the world, but it doesn't always mean you just just spend more willingly, because the more you spend sometimes, you're just feeding a corrupt system that's not working. Sure.
0: Well, and so, so with Palantir, then you basically... Use
2: Silicon Valley innovation to be able to try to make a difference. In- to try to try to break in. And it was hard. I yeah. mean, Palantir still, I think people see it as like giant thing now. Like it's still tiny compared yeah. to the big defense contractors. The only reason we're even somewhat valuable is that we actually like do something with margins. Right. So they'll do something for billions of dollars and we'll do it for cheaper and have margins. And they'll do it at cost plus. Right. right. So like, right. So it, and it well, was, cost plus know, is
0: probably part of the problem. Right. Because like, no, you can't crazy. innovate with cost plus. right? I
2: mean, anyone who thinks you could do giant. Cost plus software projects yeah. is, is an yeah. idiot. The fact that they're still doing it is not it's not that anyone actually believes in it, it's just the way the system's set up. Right? Yeah. It's just it's obviously wrong. Yeah. But no, we, we go in there. And, you know, for an outsider to win in a place like the military, you have to be 10 times better than what they're doing and you have to shame them and you have to find there are allies who are good. There are great men and women, especially in special forces, special operations. But even any part of the DOD, there's some really great, really hardworking people and they're surrounded by a lot of lazy bureaucrats and they're surrounded by a lot of mess. And you got to ally with those great ones. and You kind of got to shame everyone else. Guys, this is obviously better you have to be obviously better and then you can break in.
0: Is there anything you would have done differently?
2: I would have shamed them more aggressively earlier. Wow. I would, because the government, the government is used to like just going slow and ignoring everything, unless it is forced to like, look, it's incompetence in the face. And so when do you leave Palantir? in because there's several companies yet to come, right? We started Palantir kind of in 03, but really got like going Oh four. Yeah. My roommate and friends. And I, and I, I hired most of the first couple hundred people. I really transitioned out in 2009. And and uh, and I was still an advisor, frankly, in 2023. But in 2009, I started Atapar as a CEO, and you know, we started Palantir, we started the government side, we started the, the finance and really commercial side. Really proud of the teams we put in place there. Learned a ton, and still kind of stayed with it, helping. But but I got to the point where I would replace myself fully, and so I said, you know what, I'm going to start something I own more of, I control, and, and 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 you know, st- and still be friends with Palantir. And, and we did that with Atapar, and and that, is, and you know, in both cases, we were building companies. That we're confronting something just, just that I thought was very broken and very important. In Palantir's case, it was kind of after 9/11. We're fixing all these things globally in defense and intelligence and stopping the terrorist protecting civil liberties. And Atapara's case was after the financial crisis. I said, "Wow, there's this this area needs to be fixed." And Adepard is now the leading wealth management, you know, technology company it has about four and a half trillion dollars in the platform. And
0: yeah, actually, given the crises of 9/11 and 2007. Curious what you want to do about the crises for 2021.
2: You know, we've created the multi-billion dollar company Resilience Bio out of that. We created the biggest advanced biomanufacturer here, which was, you know, then did an mRNA with Moderna and others. And so, so it is interesting when you have a big crisis, you can oftentimes solve it in a profitable something that's profitable and is solving the problem, you know. But there's, there's a lot more to do, too.
0: Just to round out the story. So then you get into venture. Uh, yes, for, my, for my sins, that is what I'm doing with you now. <laughs> and <pro> eventually, <laughs> uh, uh, form eight VC. So why venture versus like you could have just done more startups, right?
2: Well, I was I was doing macro with Peter, which I really enjoyed, and I got to meet a lot of the great macro minds like Stan Druckermiller Miller, and Paul yeah. Stewart Jones, and others. I come from kind of a, uh, both the technology and a finance perspective, and, and the bet for me in 2010 2011 it was clear there was going to be to me like a huge bull run in technology and that the impact of technology was just going to be massive over the next decade. So both from like a financial perspective, it's like, what's the best thing to do? as well as really from a temperament perspective, I like to look at things that are broken and go mm. solve them and go build things. Yes. Those both seem to be aligned and like creating more in technology. And it turns out when you're building a lot in technology and you're hiring a lot of talented people, like people don't stay at companies forever, right? They'll they'll go. And if you have someone really good who's working with you, a lot of times the reason they'll work with you is they want to then do something with you next. And so I had all these people. So Palantir was actually rated number one for quite a while for for talent in Silicon Valley. So all these people I built up with a Palantir, people I built up with the Adapar, who were starting new things, and just just the same way you kind of advise them in the company, you advise them outside the company. So I was advising 15 or 16 companies. I was writing angel checks because it's interesting and I'm right? bullish on what they're sure. doing. And and I had these mentors who were like much more successful than me in global finance. And they said, Joe, you're basically already running a venture fund. You, you haven't institutionalized it, you haven't professionalized it you probably should take that more seriously because you have a unique opportunity there. And so so it's basically kind of like I was in that position naturally and I fell into it. it was, well, yeah. And I mean, in a sense, it's scaled entrepreneurial behavior, right? The thing that's unique about what we do at 8VC uh, is we have a build program. So, I, so, so you know, when I was building Atapar, we created OpenGov, right, which is like a mission driven company that was based on some philanthropic work we were doing where we realized all these cities had to pay tons of money to access their data. and It's a mess. And that's, I realized the secondary share market was a total mess in 2011, 2012 with my friends. And we have Zimbado, which I still share a decade later. It's this, I think it's the second biggest share exchange. Card does all their stuff through it. So, so, so I, whenever I kind of see these problems in the world, or I see problems for myself, I like to build things. And so 8 a quarter of our money goes into things we're building as well. And then we also invest. Yeah,
0: So, I mean, that naturally then brings us to healthcare. I mean, I think there's so many different opportunities for building in healthcare and for trying to bring innovation. First off, maybe let's talk about the areas where you're most excited
2: about. Yeah. I mean, healthcare is probably one of the very most exciting places to build in the world right now because it's one of the places that's the most broken.
0: And by the way, it seems like everyone thinks it's
2: broken, but we don't agree on how it's broken, right? you have areas where you don't have competition that's aligned towards the right results, right? So if you want a market to get better, you need people to have an incentive to make money and to bring innovation in a way that will lead to better results. And what's happened instead is that in every area of healthcare, you have players who've captured things to make that impossible. So like hospitals will buy up all the local hospitals they'll become local monopolies. They'll use their power to force everyone to have to work with them. They'll use their power to obscure everything. So they're charging three or four times as much for basic services in many cases where no one knows because there's not real transparency. Doctors groups. And I'm not saying doctors hospitals are bad. The hospitals are great. We all need great hospitals. We need them to be. We need them to make money. We need them to do research. So I think people have trouble in their minds keeping like two things in their minds at once. And so that you could both have the hospital system and you could have really, People well, and are it's it's the right? issue with
0: is it being a non-transparent sort of monopolistic market at times.
2: Monopolistics bad, non-transparent's bad. They put up rules like you have to get a certificate to compete with the hospital. It's a joke. And, and who gives you certificates to be at the hospital? The hospitals have to decide if you guys are not. Like we like you and I could go start clinics to compete with hospitals in certain areas for certain things they're charging too much for. And then and we do that and we make a lot of money, except for the fact there's all these rules and things stopping us and cartel power stopping us. So big issue with doctors, uh, where you know the American Medical Association, there's many good things it does, but you know, it also stops you from doing ai plus nurses to solve certain problems where right? there's all these artificial ways doctors stop competition there's if you're looking at a pathology slide uh, for cancer yeah. On average, you know, doctors make about 8 to 12% of mistakes. Uh, AI is well under 1% of mistakes now. I mean, obviously, you should have AI looking at the gosh darn cancers if your mom or your sister or your brother is going to totally. get a slide. I mean, obviously, right? Yeah.
0: But- That's part of the thing is that uh, actually a friend of mine has a joke that you can tell that uh, doctors tend to be very conservative in, in adopting new technology. You know, the language of discourse is still Latin in many cases. And, uh, you know, you can make the argument that lies are on the line, right? So so that they want to be conservative.
2: And, and, and they should be conservative. Yeah. But once we've proven something yeah. works, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, and I'm not saying doctors aren't amazing people, but there's all these there's all these forces doctors groups have that basically that basically it's to help them stop competition, to help them stop innovation. Yeah.
0: OK, so then you list a whole series of uh, potential issues like where do yeah. you start? And I'll stop yeah. listening, but it's like just, just, yeah. just
2: because people really care. Yeah, like, I agree. Payers have problems. They do, too. And they have bad incentives with, with their margins. They don't want things to be cheaper. I agree, PBMs and pharma companies have issues. Right? I'm not letting anyone off the hook here. Yes, right? Yes, there's, yes. There, there's all we can go down the yeah. list. So basically yeah. everyone in healthcare has these things where their incentive is to use the government to put blockers in. So I mean, there, so there, there's, uh, and that's not just healthcare too. I mean, like regulatory capture is common. In regulatory others. capture is common everywhere. Yeah. I think it's actually much worse in healthcare than almost anywhere else. And I think, I think there's various reasons why people are afraid to argue with doctors. I think mean, if you're a politician, you don't really understand what's going on here. You know, you know, your local hospital system is really powerful. It employs more people in your than anyone else. I think they're the most powerful special in our country is in the healthcare sector right now. Maybe defense is another one that's really powerful. And yeah. you know, I've and experienced- also technical and also like saving lives. I mean, 100%. So yeah. I, I experienced the cronyism in defense, but but I mean, healthcare, let's, let's be honest, it's 20% of our GDP. It's probably yes. the biggest, it's and, probably and, the growing, biggest and growing. And so, <laughs> so there's two, there's two ways to approach this. Uh, one way is through policy. And what you want is you want to like force transparency, force competition. You want to basically force market-driven innovation while taking care of poor people, right? You, yeah. you don't want anyone to fall out from markets, but you want the markets to make it more productive, more functional, more innovative. Yeah. Make sure you're taking care of the poor, but, Use more markets. Well, well, so let me make a devil's advocate argument. So it
0: could be that monopolies are intrinsic to healthcare. So for example, let's say I have a drug for pancreatic cancer. Otherwise, without this drug, you're going to die and there's no other drugs for pancreatic cancer. Uh, Like that's a monopoly, right? How do we figure out what to do with that? And we want to do that. We want to have these new innovations and things like that. But they sort of, because of their uniqueness, it's not like other areas where you can have this calendaring software or that calendaring software. It's fundamentally different.
2: No, I think that's right. And I think you... You should have that drug. You should have that patent for a certain number of years and then it should go into the commons. And there should be generics and it should be very easy for everyone to access generics because the problem is is when is when you have drug companies find ways to extend those monopolies longer than they should. So I, I agree. You have to have a monopoly on a drug for a certain length of time. Right now, farmer profits are about half the profits in healthcare, depending on how you measure it. It's a lot. Uh, obviously, you and I both Agree, probably has to have profits. Otherwise, what we do for a living, investing yeah. in these new cures wouldn't wouldn't work.
0: Well, actually, I want to pause there, especially because this is a, a key point. Like some people believe that there should not be profit in healthcare,
2: but, uh, but, but but then it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to attract the best and the brightest. Well, and experience. maybe there's two types of profit, right? There's like profit
0: driving innovation and profit from rent seeking, and seem, people seem to not discriminate between the two.
2: That that's true, but I think even I'm profit is not a. Profit's like a systemic signal that people are doing things that are useful, right? And so I have, I have like all these genius friends who are, you know, have young families and they want to make a living and they want to work on hard problems for the next five or ten years that will allow them to make a living. Yeah. And, and you need the signal of valuable companies for them to be able to be hired, for them to raise money. Yeah. I think there are certain people who I don't know if they're thinking clearly about this. So they see that the government is is sponsoring all this inspiring stuff at universities, and I think they assume. That the government sponsoring this research just automatically becomes a company. I don't think they realize that it takes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to take that breakthrough and to like test it and iterate and modify and actually make it work in the real world and, and like creative brilliant minds i mean the the research in the universities yeah. is the beginning and they're funded and it, and i think it's great to find that basic research and i think that's a great part of this that accelerates our country even further but then but then it takes like creative brilliant minds and tons more money to get to the point where we can then have something that works and and i think people don't realize there's like these are two parts of the ecosystem that are both yeah. necessary
0: we could we talk policy, but also it sounds like it's also some- well, It's
2: policy and entrepreneurship. It's both, right? Yeah, and so education. Well, I guess those things will work better if we educate everyone. That's fair. Yeah.
0: Then let's sort of get back to policy because I think you were on a roll there. Like, So like, where would you start with policy?
2: One of the things that I really don't like is when things are kept secret. And, and it's really funny. You go talk to senators in D.C. and they've talked to so many lobbyists. And the lobbyists have managed to convince them that keeping prices secret somehow stops a coordination. Well, so what's the argument? Can you make the argument? The other side so the other side will say if everyone saw everyone else's prices they'd be able to really easily coordinate and raise those prices okay. and raise those prices <laughs> collude to keep the yeah. prices up yeah and what people don't realize is is that if everyone saw everyone's prices in certain things uh, you'd actually be able to start competitors to them and, and they're char- charging less and make money. Like you and I, who are not part of the, part of one of these big companies could say, oh, wow, every MRI in this part of Austin is charging three times too much. We're going to start one of the charges half as much as something like a huge profit yeah. and, make, and make a bunch of money in our, in our company, right? And, and so, and you'd break in, you'd lower the cost. And then, so that's really important. Now, another thing is, is you don't want to get people to use cartel power. So one cartel power would be, well, I own the big hospital in this town. If you work with that MRI competitor, to the VJ starting, I will not work with you, yeah. and that is anti-competitive. Yeah. And but that's what they do right now. So we need to stop them from using anti-competitive cartel power on these things because it's using monopoly power. One of the biggest things for me is just is just let people shop. So if you if you have an insurance plan in Texas, we're trying to pass this. If you have an insurance plan and you find something that is that is cheaper. Uh, you should be able to at the very least use it if you want. And if you find it cheaper, if you find it cheaper and it's something that's high quality, maybe you should be able to get some of the savings on your deductible. You know? you know, I mean, telehealth is a big one to be able to practice across state lines is really big because we did a lot of this in the pandemic where suddenly you, because it was emergency, you let it work. And now all these people are trying to turn it off again because the doctors groups in these states don't want the competition. Um, one of the biggest ones for me, and this is a little bit technical. But you want to write to your own data in any app you want. This this is a really important point where so if someone if let's say there's a really smart 22 year old woman at Harvard and she has an idea for how to do preventative care. And she's going to she's going to roll it out and she's going to help all these people's health care and save money. If you want to say, oh, that's great. Uh, please hook up to my data that I, from my hospitals I've been to. Like she's not allowed to hook into that. Even if you tell her you want her to, there should be a right to your own, your billing data and your health data. And you should be able to take it and, get, and give it to her app. And it should it should be easy. There'd have to be some central entity that had all this data, right? No, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I mean this is this is when we built Palantir in the old days Everyone in the government always wants to press like a centralized button. And yes. so it's like the CIA, right? Centralized agency. It's the director of national intelligence. And they they always imagine imagine government that it's this like hub and spoke model where yes. everything talks to center thing. And, and it's never how it works the real world. Well. It's the way we built Palantir is we knew it would always be distributed. So we built it to work with you know CIA and FBI and ZTC and DNI mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and, and MI5 and MI6 and Detroit General. And then you want to be able to like flip switches so they can collaborate as if it's centralized. And and that's a technical problem you can solve. But I think I think I think it's similar in healthcare. You should assume it's always going to be distributed, but then you should have the right to electronically connect. And you just need like really, really basic, even basic standards where the information is there and the tech can figure out the rest. So something like DNS where like you can get to the data
0: you want. Just some basic, but, like, like but my,
2: my, my version of the legislation that would be best is you actually just want them to have to have one example of an app that works where it's plugging in and where that app, and then they make, make they make that app open source and then everyone else, okay, if that app is up and running and works, now we can do our app using that using that security interchange right and i don't even care what what the standard is like, yeah. i just care that it exists yeah. and then once you have that you and i could, and others would then create hundreds of competing uh you know apps that would have new ways of doing preventive care new ways of enabling payers to help people have incentives to save money and it would lead to like way better health for everyone because we'd all of a sudden have all these options helping us with our healthcare right and trying yes. things differently we'd see what works what needs to change to have that happen I, these are these are these are monopolies yeah and you know the government spent billions of dollars under Obama putting electronic health records everywhere. I think it's not a bad idea to to do that. But the problem is, is he paid Epic, especially tons of money, and then she has closed it off. If the government's going to spend billions of dollars to put health records everywhere, it should also have a rule that people have a right to their data and and to to bring it to any app they want. And and once you have that right, that will then allow us to build these markets. In principle,
0: one of the P's in HIPAA is portability so in principle there's that right but in practice you get like a DVD right
2: there's clearly clear, there's clearly not that right I mean you might get a DVD if you if you, if you bitched them for like a week or something yeah. and then they send it a month later but but for this to actually work in practice and make it a market it needs to be an API and they need to have a right to port it to another app she, she actually had a famous fight with with uh, Vice President Joe Biden I don't know if you remember this Is, they were see you're talking about uh, yeah, Judy. Judy who runs Epic and he, she's yeah. like why do you need your, your health data he has no idea what to do with health that data because apparently like, his son had died, of, died of cancer and he wanted yeah. the data yep. and wanted to work and she's like yeah, he's have no idea what even you would do with it. If we gave it to you, you could see the screen, it wouldn't be anything. And I, I can't tell if she's actually believes that because she's in her 70s and she was smart earlier and she no longer knows how innovation works or if she just wants to have a closed system. But it's it's not about you seeing your own data. It's about you being able to give it to apps right. that will do, that will then right. be smart and then give you new services and new ways of working with you, right? Yes. And yeah. that, it's a really important subtlety. And I, I've talked to several governors about it who are excited about this. So far, no state's been able to overcome the healthcare monopoly lobby because these places are powerful. I mean, these are the biggest employers in lots of the rural parts of the state. So none of them have been able to overcome it to make... Us have a right to this, you know. To, to, to President Trump's credit, and I have a lot of issues with Trump, but to his credit, uh, CMMI, Adam Bowler, at Smith, they pushed transparency rules and they really tried hard. And some of that's coming to effect. I not think it wasn't quite strong enough, but they they at least tried to do it in this direction. I, and I hope this could be a bipartisan thing, you know. Yeah. So
0: we're now hopefully getting to a post-COVID world. Did COVID inspire you to to, to build
2: anything? You know, at the start of COVID, I have to give Bob Nelson credit, who runs yeah. Arch. In January, yeah. he kind of. Convinced us all this was going to be a really big deal and we spent some time together on it and we actually co-founded with him. We sent over the initial deck with the idea and he really did a lot of the key work as well. We co-founded the largest biomanufacturer now in the advanced biomanufacturer in the U.S. Um, which resilience. Is, uh, resilience. And so for, to raise a few billion dollars. Canada paid for a plant. UE paid for a plant. UK paid for a plant. You have five in the US.
0: Yeah. And and what's biomanufacturing? Like, where are you manufacturing?
2: So it's like cell therapies, gene therapies, mRNA. It's, you know, we we some vaccines and other things too. But, you know, America needed this production. We were outsourcing so much to India and China that, especially in a time like that, it was good to have more here.
0: Any other inspirations? We talked about telehealth and what we could try to keep from covid
2: Oh yeah, gosh, there's so much from COVID to I mean there's so many lessons about how the healthcare system is broken and how it could work more quickly, which yeah. you saw during yeah. COVID and then and it's frustratingly getting rolled back. Yeah. My favorite thing in general lately has just been like healthcare services and aligning mm-hmm. incentives and building theirs. So basically just find ways of helping people in need and then using risk-based payments to to make it work. For example, we're investors in City Block, which is I think a I think is a really great example of this. This I hope I hope more people see this cause who who, who are skeptical of capitalism and healthcare. So, so it turns out that the poorest of the poor in our country are on Medicaid, right? These are people who, you know, if you take the 5% of Medicaid, they're, they're worst off. They're chronically ill. A lot of them are homeless. A lot of them are mentally ill. And that 5% of Medicaid is like 45% of the spend. This yeah. is like $380 yeah. billion dollars a, lot of my, a yeah. year. And it turns out that these people, like no one helps them, right? These are poor. They don't really have, there's no system. So this company, which we, we invested early in, goes and it hires people, and it has a doctor at the top of the team, and it has multiple nurses reporting to a doctor, then each nurse will have, you know, five or ten kind of trained people reporting to her. And you use data-driven interventions depending on what their problem is. So like, certain people need to be helping to take their medication. Certain people need to be helped. And, and simple things to like to simple. avoid
0: hospitalization, to avoid the to expensive avoid,
2: things. Yeah, if it's like the winter time and it's negative 20, like, help them get like a $50 motel room versus go to the emergency room because they're going to freeze to death, right? Because yeah. right, these people are struggling. And, and it turns out you can save like 40% of their medical costs. Yeah. You scale this up, this saves, you know, $100 billion for the country. Wow. And, and not only does it save $100 billion, you're like, you're positively impacting millions of these deaths to do people, right? So, and I, I think it's really cool that like the incentives align. Like when you, when you, and I think Obama gets a lot of credit for this. I think, you know, this originally came from like Cato and like libertarian thinkers as well. Like when you align risk and you align know, value-based care in the right way, yeah. we actually can use capitalism innovation to help poor people and save costs. And And we're, we're doing this in rural primary care. We're doing this with like, turns out single mothers with new babies have a really tough time. And by hiring extra experts to like help them and guide them, you not only help the kids do better, but you save money longer term. So there's, there's all these parts of the healthcare system where you just like, could do something to help people bring down costs. That, that's, that's that's my favorite idea. Well, ideas. so what
0: would you say of this, which is that the helping people longer term is is often a goal. And for a lot of people, the only way they see how to do that is single payer. I guess Medicaid is a kind of a single payer, right? I mean, if you move from from insurance company to insurance company, what's the incentive for an insurance company to care about your long-term health? Like, is there a way to address that?
2: Yeah. The problem is that you in a free society, you want to try different ideas and you want the ideas to compete. And so if you want I think I think if you say like everything we know is what we're going to know for the rest of time then single payer would be the right answer. Like if there's no new, if there's no new innovation then then single payer is the right answer. It turns out in practice innovations don't spread through monolithic monopolies. They don't spread through single payer. They don't like if if you want to try new things and you want to innovate in new ways for better solutions, you need there to be some kind of competition to allow some places to test one idea, some places to test an idea and the, t- and the ones are working to grow. What we what we need to do is we need to move more towards a self-insured model and we need to move more towards aligning payers and providers in the model where we fix the incentives. And, and, and we allow a model where you can try new ideas that work and the ideas spread. Because what we all want is we want the ideas that have better health for cheaper the spread. And, and if, you, if you don't have that, we're in trouble as a country. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I think one of the COVID tailwinds might be that we all had health very
0: much in our minds. And in terms of being self-insured, that is something where maybe we actually can sort of uh, entrust people in sort of being a more active participant in their healthcare
2: rather than being like a product in the process. So what self yeah what self-insured means to me is that the person who's pay is the group that's paying. Uh, it has an incentive for it to be cheaper because they're not tied to the regulated insurance model. The way we've regulated insurance in this in this country has completely broken the model because it's fixed profits margins.
0: One last big topic, and then we'll do one fun topic. So, you mentioned that pharmaceuticals are half of the profits in healthcare. It's also a huge place for innovation. Where do you think the tension should be in terms of innovation versus regulation? And where are the areas that you think we could make improvements? Yeah, well, f-
2: first of all, I think the most ridiculous part of that whole system is what's called pharmacy benefit managers, which are the middlemen that sell these things. And there's all these ways in which they're- but, yeah,
0: Okay, let me push back on that. To. Like, it, it is distribution, right? I mean, and distributors 100%, 100%. typically we need- don't get the, the the props they deserve because sort of in the background.
2: We definitely need distribution, but it shouldn't be regulated in such a way that it's opaque and that you have guys making $100 billion profit. And the, whole, the whole thing is basically like, like there's thing called gag orders. So I'll tell you what we did in my, pro, my policy group like five or six years ago, even five or six years ago. It was legal for a PBM to tell a doctor, listen, I, there's multiple generics and options here. You are not allowed, if you work with us, to tell the patient about the cheaper option. And so there'd literally be like one generic thing they'd have, or other drug they'd have to pay like two hundred dollars or two thousand dollars for, and there'd be like the one they had to pay five dollars for, and they'd do what's called a gag order. The doctor couldn't couldn't tell them, people the pharmacist couldn't tell them about the cheaper exact equivalent option. And so we we actually got this to the Senate, and we got the Senate of the United States ninety-seven to zero, to, you know, along with other friends, wow. so, so, so to say no, there's no more gag orders there now. Unfortunately, they wouldn't get rid of the gag orders on pricing, and so these PBMs literally. Uh, don't let anyone, t- tell, let anyone tell anyone Tell anyone else what they're paying for things. I, I support competition. I support distribution. But it, you shouldn't be able to use your cartel power to do gag orders. Like, I think we could all. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's funny because people assume like I'm somehow pro corp- corporate. I'm not here at all. I'm saying these corporations are using their power. It's. The I mean, ways. the common theme has been kind of anti-monopoly. It's anti-monopoly and it's anti-using yeah. government too because they, yeah. they they purposely put all these rules in. Like I mean, I'll give you like, outside of healthcare, like the big banks and like Black Rock and Blackstone, they have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars a year to lawyers. Yeah, They love it. They joke to me about it when I know some of the guys there because like, guess what? Because I'm paying $300 million to lawyers to do this. You, Joe, cannot do a startup that could do this because you cannot afford a billion dollars for your first three years of lawyers, right? And it's the same thing in healthcare where because they have all these really too – I mean, everyone wants rules to protect people, but if you purposely put in so many rules that you can't compete, then there's no real competition. And so going back, the other big issue in pharma is the FDA. Right. I actually just think the FDA needs competition. I think if there's like three FDAs, it'd be great. Well, okay. what, What do you mean by three FDAs? Well, there's just, there's so many processes the FDA does that are outdated, that are the way you should have done it 40 years ago, yeah. that are slow, yeah. that are, you know, if you kind of annoy them, they might take an extra six to 12 months. But, but how could there be another FDA? Like, what would, e- practically, what would that look like? I mean, the FDA makes fees from working with these companies. It's, like, it's funded yeah. based on the work. Just with them. fund a second one? People, yeah, yeah people have, could have an option to go to a second one and, yeah. and then or, or a third one. Or you could do it different regions. It'd be great. Yeah. Like, like Texas could have, their in their region, like, they still gonna have a fifth circuit court. They're going to be a like fifth circuit FDA. And they'd probably be a lot more lenient. Yeah. And people could choose to live in Texas and choose to do that. And by the way, once the Texas FDA had approved something and people were using it for a year, even though like the New England FDA, which is like much more kind of haughty, you know, like Boston Brahmin, like we're going to take 10 more years because, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, like they're going to say, oh, wow, I guess this this Texas one, those guys are those guys are rascals are going too fast. But I guess it works. So maybe It, we'll it, it faster, is interesting. You
0: know? Like if you look at the history of the FDA, it starts with thalidomide. Uh, and then you know, there's a lot of buildup of regulation. And then you get to the 80s with AIDS. And actually there's a crisis of people dying of AIDS and wanting the drugs and not getting them. And then the pendulum moves back. A lot of these questions are not questions of science, but questions of policy, which are somewhat arbitrary. In some They're cases. very arbitrary. Yeah. And it's so always yeah. a balance of risk, right? Because sometimes not getting the treatment is the bigger risk.
2: It, it, exactly. And to me, that is unethical. To me, it's, 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 it's I, I get protecting people. But the trade-offs they make, they're they are too well, slow.
0: It is literally a, a modern trolley car problem, right? You have to decide
2: which way to go. And- well, you don't really though because the, the ethical thing – this is the thing. If it was them yeah. that was killing someone, that would be one thing. If it, but if it was them allowing a doctor to make that choice, allowing a patient to make that choice, like you could be a patient yeah. who sees these results, who you yourself yeah. as, as a free person want to use this and they will say no. Yeah. So that's not a trolley car problem. It's a trolley car problem for someone who's extremely elitist and yeah. believes that they control <laughs> all of society. But to me, they'll not let a person make that choice yes. once it's already, you know, into phase three. I think that's messed up.
0: Yeah, especially I think uh, and this is what happened with AIDS activists is like they're going to die. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so so getting access to the drugs, I think that's pro- had a huge sort of uh, change in policy. We're almost out of time. So I want to uh, end on and tell me if it's too personal, but what do you do for
2: your own health? You know, my neighbor, yeah. he, he's not my doctor, but my neighbor is Peter Atia in yeah. Texas, A-T-T-I-A. Yeah. And he has a famous podcast and this stuff. So I, I follow his stuff a lot. He, he gave me a couple of different... Uh, frameworks I thought were really useful one of the things was is when you get into your 60s 70s 80s it's kind of like you're a glider and once you get to below a certain level you're gonna crash you're not yeah. going to be able to like get stronger and get better right. again yeah. so you kind of want to be as strong as possible you yeah you can get as 450s. high up the mountain as you can and then exactly slowly glide down exactly and, that, and yeah. that's true not just for strength and that kind of health but a lot of a lot of traditional doctors will look at like things like cholesterol and they'll say oh you're in these bounds that's good enough and that, that's not good enough. You should be on the really good side of those bounds, right? So like, for example, I, my cholesterol is quite healthy, but I still take a tiny bit of a statin because it's it's smart and, and, and it pushes it in even better directions. There's even less cumulative damage, right? I'm not, I'm not saying I know what I'm doing necessarily, but from the smartest people I talk to, you know, I have a trainer. There's certain exercises and flexibility you do. There's certain yes. things with statins. There's, there's certain things that are worth taking yes. to move you to the better side of things. And so I, you know, I have to admit though, I'm not the best. I, I had an aura ring for a while. And basically the aura ring would tell me you know, don't drink as much. Yes. Get more sleep. Yes. Um, you had bad sleep last don't, night. Don't smoke too many cigars. Yeah. And, and you know, it turns out that this ring I already have <laughs> tells me that too for my wife. So I didn't need the R ring. <laughs> the, any, yeah. any, any supplements
0: or anything like that? You play that game?
2: Yeah. You know, I think, I think especially if you drink, the vitamins B and C are really yeah. good. I yeah. think omega-3s, I think some vitamin D the right time of day yeah. seems right. Um, I do a little bit of, uh, and I'm curious what you do. I do a little bit of the NMN stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I think yeah. there's like a, what's a doctor in Harvard who sells this stuff. Like, yes. I think I think yes. it could make sense. Yeah, yeah, it could make sense.
0: I take a whole bunch of things. But also, I very much agree with you on in terms of the peaking. I'm still PRing and weightlifting. That's awesome. A- and like I'm like 52, so I wonder when that ends. When this I podcast want
1: is really a vehicle for Vijay to brag about this <laughs> PR. <laughs> well, I didn't I say really how much it. I
0: lift.
2: I-, I just said that I'm because I'm
0: the real person I'm competing against is like old VJ, right? Of and course. as long as I kick his ass and everything is fine,
2: that's great. I'm I'm uh, I'm not quite PRing because I was quite an athlete yeah. in my early 20s, yeah, but I, yeah. I will try to get close to that again. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So Joe, you have a podcast called American Optimist, and Vijay, you talk about American dynamism in bio and health a lot. Maybe you can both talk about why you're optimistic for the future.
2: I mean, I'm optimistic because there's good answers to all these things we're talking about. So it'd be one thing if like healthcare was so expensive and there's no way to fix it. We don't understand why. But what's really great when you go into these parts of defense and healthcare and and other areas of our society where people are suffering or not doing as well, there's there's obvious answers. I mean, the answer is more take courage than anything else. They take getting people together to learn about it and, and to build and innovate in ways that we understand are possible. So I'm optimistic because there's good answers that make our society more prosperous for everyone. I just want everyone else to see them and to fight with me to get there.
0: And I'm optimistic because I think people are thinking about healthcare more than ever, whether we're talking about it in a professional sense, but even just in a personal sense. COVID did a lot to get people thinking about it and you know, I think they have disagreements but these really should be personal decisions in many cases. And I think having people be informed and thinking about what they want for their family and for themselves, then they actually can seek out these options. And there are a lot of different things. I think we're going to see a lot more consumer-driven healthcare.
2: Uh, because people are really craving Have, this, having more people thinking about it's a huge positive for the sector. Yeah,
0: and creates a, a challenge because there's going to be misinformation, and there's always these are modern problems that are going to be there no matter what. But I, I think just that emphasis on people caring—that's the foundation for which we can build a lot more. Yeah, and
2: that lets us innovate. The 2020s, there's going to be a lot of cool things happening in healthcare. Agreed.
0: Well, so thank you so much for for being on Biotech World. Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying Bioweight's world, please leave us a rating and review that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures.